Should we be, as Christians, should we be growing in our characters? I mean, not be characters, but grow in our character. <laughs> People say to me sometimes, they say, would you write me a, a character reference? I said, I said, do you want me to tell them how much of a character I think you are? <laughs> as Christians, we should be growing in character. And that's a challenge, and to assist us, In that challenge of growth in character, God does what? What does he do for us so so that we can grow in character? He makes us suffer. (laughs) That's right. He brings trials into our life. Oh, joy. Well, that's what the Bible tells us. The Bible tells us these trials have come so that our faith, uh, uh, it's worth more than gold. Uh, that our faith can be sharpened, that our characters can be honed and uh, enriched. And so this morning, I want to I want to I want us to walk through some character um, traits, and and these speak to uh, certainly in the context they speak to leaders in the church, overseers in the church, more particularly. But they should speak to every single Christian. Would you agree with me? So if you're a Christian, don't just sit there and say, well, you know, this doesn't really apply to me. Yes, it does apply to you. So I want you to to take this to heart. And also grade yourself. As I mentioned earlier in the notes, there there there's a little continuum after each of of these character traits. So you can look at yourself and say, where do do I fall on this? And uh, if you've been part of the church any length of time at all, and we do this every single year, uh, you can grade yourself. Where, where was I last year? Where am I today? And, and, and certainly it's a subjective thing, but it'll give you a sense of, of your growth. Just read with me now. First Timothy chapter 3. We read the first uh, seven verses. Paul says, Here's a trustworthy saying. If anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, he desires a noble task. Wow. He desires a noble task. Now the overseer must be above reproach. The husband of but one wife, he must be temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to much wine, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect And if anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. Paul tells us that that being an overseer, um, being an elder, a pastor, overseer, any, any one of those terms can be used interchangeably in the New Testament. But he says to aspire to that, to desire to be that, is a noble thing. It's a noble task. In other words, it is something to aspire to. All of us have things that we aspire to in our life. And, and the question one asks is, do I aspire to leading in the church? Do I aspire to ministry in the church? So it's something to aspire to. I would, I would say, this, say it this way, to oversee 
the most precious thing. Think about this. To oversee the most precious thing on earth to God. The church. Think about that. The church is what, what God purchased with his own blood. The church is the most precious thing on earth. And he calls us to aspire to be overseers, to be elders, to be pastors, to be caregivers of his church. Isn't that a beautiful picture? He says this is a, this is a, a noble thing. Um, you think about in the face of all the problems, all the labors that we can experience in life. The greatest encouragement and incentive that an overseer can have is to know that he performs an exceedingly excellent work. All all that goes on, he performs an exceedingly excellent work overseeing God's church, his most precious possession. And that, that, Paul would suggest, is worthy of the sacrifice that's to be made, the sacrifice of one's life. Paul talks about pouring out his life as a drink offering for the church. He talks about all of the things he'd gone through in his great concern for the churches. And he calls us to follow in that same footsteps. And again, this is not just for leaders. This is for every Christian. Every Christian, I believe, should have a great concern for the church because it's... It's the apple of God's eye, his church. A noble task, then, would naturally require a noble person. Would you agree? To assure that only men of good character fill the role of overseer, the Apostle Paul now provides the local church with observable qualifications, things that you can quantify to protect both the office of overseer and as well to protect the church. And hence, these qualifications. Now, we're just going to briefly comment on each one, and you can follow along in your notes. The first one, he says that the overseer must be above reproach. And above reproach means simply uh, that he is blameless in his life. Blameless meaning that there should be no verifiable, unresolved Charges of wrongdoing that can be brought against him. None of us are perfect. No leader, no pastor, no elder is perfect. We're all weak, we're all fallible, we all make mistakes, errors in judgment. But we want to make sure that when those things do occur, that they are resolved immediately. We don't want any unresolved issues in the background that can be verified. So he should be above reproach. And... The characteristic pattern of the life of one who would lead in the church is that his life, very simply, is lived in, in line with biblical standards, biblical principles, biblical truth. He, he simply lives a biblical lifestyle. This is certainly an overarching summary statement, and all the rest of the qualifications would fall under this particular heading of being above reproach. The second one would be should be the husband of but one wife. The idea is that uh, he should be a one-woman kind of man. I think all of us respect and honor men who, 
who have that attitude. There's only one woman in my life. I'm not a womanizer. I'm not a flirtatious person. We want our leaders to be stable and demonstrate that kind of stability in their life. There's only one woman in my life. Yes, dear. Now, that doesn't mean that an overseer couldn't be a single man. Certainly could, but, but his character is such that he would be, if he were married, a one-woman kind of man, totally devoted to his wife. In a world where even the highest places today are deluged with immorality, the Christian church, above all, must demonstrate, and I think you'll agree with me, the purity, stability, and sanctity of the Christian home. Amen? He must be temperate. All of us should be temperate. All of us should live balanced lives. That's what it means to be temperate, to live a balanced life. The idea behind that is that we are not people who are prone to destructive extremes. On the one hand, we give, give way to fanaticism. On the other hand, to legalism. And the challenge for all of us is to live a balanced life. And that we don't lose our our orientation physically, personally, spiritually. Uh, we know people whose lives are out of control. We, we encounter them every day. And, and the challenge is always to stay in, in a certain balance in all of our life. It starts spiritually, doesn't it? I submit to you that if we're not living spiritually balanced lives, you're not going to live a personally balanced life or a physically balanced life. Everything else is going to be out of order. But we want to make sure that we are steadfast and stable, clear in our thinking. And this goes especially true for those who would lead and oversee in the church. Along with that, uh, you should be self-controlled. Now, there's overlap, obviously, in all of these qualities. No clear line of distinction between them, but there is overlap. Self-control means to simply exhibit a disciplined life. Do I live a disciplined life? Do I, do I practice spiritual disciplines? Am I growing in Christ-likeness as a result? If I'm not living a disciplined life, there is no, no hope at all that I'm going to grow in Christ-likeness. Do you think that Jesus lived a disciplined life? Absolutely. Absolutely. Do you think that Jesus was in control of his passions and appetites? Should we be as Christians? Yeah, if we are being conformed in his image, you should see that you, your life is such that your passions and your appetites, though may have been out of control, are now coming under greater, greater control. All the more true of those who are our leaders. Would you agree? And this is not the result mainly of self-effort, but this is in cooperation with the Holy Spirit so that we can, by the Spirit of God living in us, make wise choices and live in dependence upon him and by his power. We are to live spirit-empowered lives. And remember, self-control, the evidence of living a spirit-empowered life is the fruit of the spirit, of which self-control is one characteristic of the fruit of the spirit. So in other words, a self-controlled life is a life that is in order, a life that is lived for God, not for self. Is that not our challenge all the time? Absolutely. Not my will, but yours be done, Lord. We're, we're constantly praying that refrain, constantly reminding ourselves, because we can get out there, can't we? He should be respectable, 
And again, this is true for all Christians. Should we live lives that command respect just by how we live them? We, we don't have to say anything. Just how we live our life should command respect of other people. How much more then should our leaders? A respectable life is an orderly life, a well-arranged life. A life that is conducted in such a manner earns the respect of other people who are observing. Do people watch us all the time? Yeah, especially, you know, your neighbors, your friends, your relatives, your, your people you work with who, who are not yet Christians, and all of a sudden now you're making the pronouncement, I'm a Christian, I'm one of those born-agains. Are they going to watch you? Absolutely. And what are they looking for? They're looking for what? Consistency. They're looking for godliness. They're looking for something in our life that is respectable. Because in this world, there's not very much to respect, is there? It's almost anything goes today, huh? And so we should be people who are living our life in a manner that really does learn the respect and earn the respect and the honor of those around us. We don't run from crisis to crisis because of our own disorganization. Hospitable is another quality. Should all Christians be hospitable? I love this. People say, well, I don't have the gift of hospitality. There is no gift of hospitality. Let me correct that, that, that misunderstanding right now. There is no spiritual gift of hospitality. We all should be hospitable, should we not? And especially, Paul says, those who oversee the church. Why? Because those who oversee the church set the tone. They model hospitality, just as Jesus does. He didn't turn anybody away. A hospitable person doesn't turn people away. Lives an open life. Is the, the word hospitable from the Greek originally means, meant loving strangers. A hospitable person loves strangers. Does Jesus love strangers? Are we to welcome the stranger? Yes, absolutely. And when you become a Christian, God changes you. Where before maybe you've been very selfish, you didn't want to be bothered with other people, and now he changes you, his spirit lives in you, and all of a sudden you find yourself, guess what, loving strangers. Oh my, <laughs> what a difference. And again, this is a very, very significant quality. Would you think that that's a, a good quality for the church to exhibit? Oh, absolutely. When strangers come in our midst. What? They, they, they sense our love. Corporately, individually. That we're very open and willing to share with them, to help them, especially those who need assistance. Able to teach. I think all of us, to some degree, should be able to teach as Christians. We should be able to communicate a knowledge of the Scriptures. Should we know the Bible? Should we growing in our knowledge of Jesus Christ? Should we? Absolutely. Come on, work with me here, you guys. Yeah, and, and again, just as all of us should be able to teach, certainly our leaders should be able to teach. And that implies three things. That implies having a knowledge, a working knowledge of the Scriptures, a biblical doctrine, a biblical truth, that you could rightly divide the Word of God to people, help them understand what the truth is. Not that some kind of general, vague understanding of the scriptures but you can sit down you can open the bible and you can explain it to people you can walk them through from the old testament through the new testament that would also imply a willingness to teach that i'm willing to do it and thirdly it would imply certainly the ability to communicate to actually talk to people 
The next one is not given to much wine. This should go without saying. Would you agree? We don't want our leaders, and especially especially our leaders, we do not want them loopy, <laughs> to put it mildly. We don't want them to come into the elders' meetings or the, the <laughs> council meetings. <laughs> Feeling good. Tipsy. Not given to much wine. The Greek word literally refers to the habit the habit of over-drinking. Does that mean you can't have a glass of wine now and again? No, it does not. It just means that you're not given to the habit of over-drinking and getting uh, drunk. That would extend certainly in our day and age to uh, any kind of use of habitual drugs uh, for the purpose of uh, addicting, being addicted. I think you'll agree with me that a drunk is a disgrace in ordinary society let alone the church. So we want to guard against that. Not given too much wine. Not violent, but gentle would be the next characteristic. Should Christians be violent people? Of course not. And especially leaders should not be violent people, but rather should be gentle people. Uh, the word violent literally means one who strikes out, a striker. One who would strike out with violent words or even violent actions. A person like that typically would have a chip on his shoulder, um, would not necessarily be gracious, kind, forbearing, or generous. So not a striker. We do not want fights going on in the council chamber. We can have vigorous discussions, and sometimes we do, and that's fine, but not fisticuffs. Not quarrelsome. Again, there's overlap here. Um, quarrelsome person is someone who's commonly given to simply being argumentative for the sake of being argumentative. Do we know people like that? I just, I just want to argue with you. I don't want to argue with you. They're quarrelsome. They're, they're given to controversies and, and, and disputings and rivalries. And that just is not constructive or helpful at all. Christians should not evidence that kind of thing, should they? No. Should Christians be stubborn, stubborn people in the face of reasonable objections? Should we just dig our heels in just for the sake of... No. And certainly leaders should not also. We need to be reasonable people, not quarrelsome. Peaceable, not inclined to fight. Not a lover of money. Um, we know that money is the center of all kinds of evil, Right? Right? No? Oh, you guys are good. You guys really are good. No, what is it? What's the, what's the center of all kinds of people? The love of money. When you love money, and, and all of a sudden, the love of money can displace everything, can't it? Displace everything that's good and righteous in your life. You've got to have money. Is that addictive? Oh, absolutely. So the... Christians should not be, and certainly the leaders in the church, should not be people who are centered on the accumulation of worldly wealth. doesn't mean that money is a bad thing in and of itself. doesn't mean that if God makes you rich, it's a bad thing. It just means that if that's the focus of your life, you're headed down the wrong trail. And certainly leaders should not follow that. Uh, the greatest, the greatest um, priority in a Christian's life should be laying up treasure in the bank, right? in our retirement accounts. 
what retirement account should we be laying up treasure? The one in heaven. And, you know, sometimes we just kind of blow that off and think it's a, a cute little thing. But when we get there, you would have wished that you'd have laid up more treasure in heaven. I promise you. <laughs> so many people waste time and waste energy and waste their priorities. Um, and particularly of a leader. This is true, again, of all Christians, but particularly of a leader. Uh, a leader should not be one who is liable to be accused of using his position for financial gain. In other words, conflict of interest. We've seen that happen a couple times in our church, and it's led to sad, sad results. Leaders should not use unethical or questionable tactics to gain money, nor should any Christian use unquestionable tactics. And certainly, uh, a leader, and as well, every Christian, should give more attention to people than to things. Is that a fair statement? Why? What? Because people are what? Things are just going to burn up and pass away. People are really, really important to the Lord. And again, if, if, uh, if wealthy, uh, if God has blessed you, um, you should be rich in good deeds. You should be generous and willing to share. Paul tells Timothy to instruct those who are rich that they should be rich in good deeds, generous and willing to share. So money basically is, is stewardship, just like everything else, isn't it? An overseer must manage his family well. Should every Christian man manage his family well? Yes. Or should he delegate the management of his family to his wife? Should he abdicate? Say, honey, you take care of things. I'm just going to go to the job and go out in the garage and do my hobby. You manage the family. No, of course not. Does that happen today? <sighs> Far too much. He must be able to manage his family well. That means, among other things, is he a good steward over the relationships that God has entrusted to him? More particularly, the family relationships. Does he provide for his family spiritually? Does he provide for his family personally? In other words, is there involvement in the lives of his family members or does he isolate? Does he provide for his family uh, materially? Paul talks about uh, a man who does not provide for his family is worse than a, than a non-believer, worse than an infidel. So this is a high priority. And, and every Christian man should be a man who cares and takes care for and provides for his family. And certainly this should mark the life of every leader. And Paul says that if, uh, if a man can't manage his own family well, how in the world can we expect him to manage the family of God? And then he adds this statement, his children should be obedient and respectful. Now he's specifically referring to children in the home under his authority. Are those children obedient and respectful? He's not talking about children who have grown up and out of the house and, and you know, doing their own thing. No father is perfect. No father is perfect. But the behavior of his children should, in fact, reflect his instruction and his leadership in the home. This is absolutely, absolutely critical. The next generation of the church coming up is going to be a direct reflection of the fathers who are instructing and leading and teaching their children. No one should be able to accuse the children of an overseer, an elder, a pastor, of being wild and insubordinate. 
in Titus, Paul writes to Titus, and he says to Titus in chapter 1, verse 6, that children of overseers should be believers. So you raise our children to be believers. Also, not a recent convert. We don't want to put uh, somebody who is a brand new Christian into leadership because he may fall into the trap of the devil and be caught up in conceit and given to foolishness. He just simply doesn't know the word, hasn't developed a good enough reputation as a Christian, uh, doesn't have a foundation in sound doctrine. Uh, A novice, a recent convert, is a neophotos. That's the Greek word. And it means literally to wrap up in smoke. The idea is to be in a cloud of conceit. And we know that pride leads to what? The fall. So the same, same problem the devil experienced. And lastly, you should have a good reputation with outsiders. Again, all of us as Christians should have a good reputation with outsiders. People, our neighbors, people we work with, or even our unbelieving relatives should say, you know, they are good folks. Uh, we had a neighbor come over and tell us uh, that she just has watched our family, watched our family, and she just really respects us as people. And it, that's nice to get that kind of feedback. And, and really, we try to live our lives that way. If all believers are required to have a good testimony before non-believers, then certainly it's important that leaders have a good reputation without those people outside the church. Because why? Because our credibility, our credibility and our witness is tied to our moral reputation, is it not? And more so with our leaders. How many times have we seen down the years uh, leaders, especially people in high places of leadership in the church, prominent places publicly, have, uh, have fallen and it's brought shame on the cause of Christ, brought shame on the church. That's an overview of the qualities that we're looking for in the men that I'm going to present to you, that we have examined their lives. And those are qualities certainly that should mark every Christian's life, and every Christian should be aspiring to these certain qualities. Now, you have in your bulletin a uh, page with double-sided pictures and short biographical sketches of the four men who have been nominated to serve on our church council. You also have in your notes the duties of a church council person, and they are numerous if you'll go down that list. Uh, Church council is largely responsible for the general oversight of the church, and more particularly with respect to money, finances, budgets, properties, insurances, and all the physical things that, that... uh, or make it possible for us to have church, if you will. So they're responsible for all that, the hiring and, and the, uh, all the finances. So I'm going to have you meet these four men. Now, here's the, here's the thing. The nominating committee has evaluated these four men. We, we've gone through a list of all the men in the church, and we've honed it down, honed it down, honed it down to these four men. We believe these men are, are, are significant men in our church long-standing members, have served, have demonstrated uh, this kind of character. They are well-known. And so they're commended to the body. Now, this is for two reasons. One, our bylaws require that we have a ratification ballot. And also, we're trusting that the Holy Spirit will be the final, make the final statement and the final uh, verification of what we believe is true. 
that these men are what they purport to be. You may know one of the men in a, in a way that I don't know or, or, or the, our nominating committee doesn't know them. And you may know something that would really seriously disqualify them uh, in terms of the qualifications that we had just read. It has to be serious enough. It has to be verifiable and it has to be unresolved. A significant thing. If that's true, if you do know of something personal, you've had some personal knowledge, not secondhand, not thirdhand, uh, when you meet them, you know, one of them maybe do a dance, say you didn't like their dance. Uh, those are not bases on which to know, okay? Only if you know something that is serious enough to disqualify them would you vote no in the column, no column next to their name. If you do not know anything that would disqualify them, then vote yes next to all the names. But just put a check mark in the yes, yes column. If you do vote a no, then please write your name, address, and phone number so I can contact you and find out what the issue exactly is. Are we, are we clear on that? So I'm trusting that the Holy Spirit is going to validate our choice or not through you, and also this is going to, this is going to satisfy uh, our requirement. Now, if you're a member of the church, what does it mean to be a member? There's some membership uh, forms in your bulletin also. We've included those. And you can read down that list. A member of the church is basically someone, this is your church. You're committed. You're committed to be involved in the community, the family. You're committed to serving here. You're committed um, to grow. You're committed financially. Uh, those, those dynamics really do define uh, a member of the church. You are a contributor. You're not just a consumer. You're not just a spectator. You're an active participant in the life of the church. You say, this is my church. That essentially defines a member of the church. Now, whether or not you've actually signed our membership book or not at this point is not that important to me. You can use that form uh, to make it more formal in your bulletin. But we have to have this because of our bylaws. So I'm going to ask you, we're going to meet these men, and then we'll have a, a moment of prayer after, and then we'll take our vote. So please welcome first Mark Haley. Mark does the most dancing. <laughs> yeah, fortunately, uh, I'm not a dancer, I'm a drummer. So, uh, <laughs> good morning, everybody. This was my service for five years. I, uh, I was the headbanger up here for five years on Sunday morning. Now I do that on Saturday nights and uh, joyfully do that uh, and gladly serve God with that gift and ability that he's given me. Um, I've actually lived in the South Bay my whole life, within 30 miles of this church, and uh, this is, this is my home, Southern California. Uh, my, my mom's from Pittsburgh, and my dad's from Chicago. And so uh, they moved out here. And uh, my, I have one older brother who's a year older who just moved to Thailand. And so uh, he needs some prayer right now because they're flooding over there. So if you could remember my brother Patrick, I'd appreciate that. Um, anyway, um, I first came here in the late 70s uh, as a visitor one time. Uh, a friend of mine invited me, and that's the first time I was here. And uh, I think the stage was on this side before, and, and I was sitting in the back. And then uh, later on, um, I came back in the late 80s, and I got a little bit involved, and I was in mini church uh, with a singles mini church, and there came a few uh, marriages out of that mini church, which was kind of cool, uh, but not me. Um, God had other plans for me. But um, anyway, um, I, I was kind of like sitting in the back and not really a book signed member, as Zach was saying. 
And uh, so, I, you know, I, I came and I observed and I knew the word was true. I knew that God's word was, uh, you know, exactly truth, as um, John 17 says, that your word is truth. But I didn't apply it to my life. Um, I got a job as a sound engineer and I went on tour uh, traveling the United States doing, um, you know, a lot of exciting things. But again, I grew apart from God and did not live my life for God. And then um, shortly after 9-11, I had my own personal 9-11 where God brought me to my knees and um, showed me that the life I was living was not the life that he desired for me. It wasn't responding to the call that he had given me and being the godly man that he had called me in Christ. So he lifted me out of the pit that I had dug my own hole in. And by his grace, he redeemed me. And I'm so grateful for that. He's been preparing me ever since then. I've um, been involved with HGMI. I've taken all the classes. I've really enjoyed them. And um, I can commend them all to you. And um, it's important that um, we understand the word and be able to communicate it, as Zach was saying, to be able to teach the word of God rightly and rightly handle the word. So um, God has just been preparing me for the last couple of years to serve. It is an honor and a privilege to be before you and just humbly say, please remember to pray for us. There's, uh, there's Brad, Brian, and then there's Bernhardt, those three Bs. My name is Mark, so I, I'm not a B name. Sorry about that. But please, I'm asking for you all to pray for us as we lead the church under Zach's um, leadership. So thank you again, and God bless you. Thank you, Mark. Bernhardt, hurla. There he is. Did you meet that gal from Austria last night? She was yes. Here? Oh, did you? Yes. Christina Barth? Yeah, yeah. I said you could talk German. There was another member that also spoke German. Yeah. Or he could pronounce my name. <laughs> um, the first time I came to uh, Hope Chapel, I experienced something that Zach said earlier uh, at communion, he mentioned love. I really felt love in this room, like I've never felt love before. And I was raised where uh, you always have to be mindful of your thought uh, process or your feelings, because your feelings can change. Um, but uh, continuously coming here, um, whenever I could. I was working at the time as a closing manager at Albertson. I lived in Venice, and oftentimes my schedule just didn't permit me to come at any of the services. But um, as I was uh, continuously coming, I, I felt that love, and I, I really felt that this is my home. And this is actually um, our service as a family and uh, I'm sorry to say that my family can't be with me this morning. They all said goodbye to me this morning with a cough concert. Um, my son has uh, maybe uh, another respiratory uh, infection. Uh, uh, we will find out today. I think my wife may be actually at the urgent care. And uh, my other two kids are also coughing. So uh, if you could uh, keep our family in your prayers, I would appreciate that. And that's what the body of Christ is for. You know, we all need each other. Everybody has a gift. Everyone that sits here has a gift. And God has called you to use that gift. And he has called me to use my gifts. And um, one of the uh, 
things in the past was I was taking a class with Pastor Bruce, uh, discovering your uh, spiritual gifts. And uh, I can really recommend every one of you who hasn't taken this class to take that class. Anyways, uh, telling you a little bit more about me. So I was working uh, for the grocery stores and uh, was oftentimes hard to come here. Uh, then in 2003, uh, the uh, grocery chains went on strike, so I was locked out as a key man. And uh, that night before, my father passed away. It wasn't a surprise to us because he was uh, sick with cancer. And uh, actually, it was quite astonishing. I had this uh, pressing of the Holy Spirit, call your dad, call your dad. There's about nine hour uh, time difference, so you can't call any time of the day. You always have to consider uh, that they're ahead. So I called him and I said, uh, Dad, let me just read something to you out of James. And that's nothing more that he wanted, that his son is reading him scripture. But he stopped me under tears and he said, you know, I'm sorry, you have to stop. I, 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 I just don't have the strength. And we have been praying for our dad, you know, for one and a half years. But I said, Lord, just please either heal him or take him away. And he answered that call. The next morning, I was woken up at 6 o'clock, and I had no job. And my father just passed away. But in that, I came here, and I believe it was an 8 o'clock service. I'm, I'm not quite sure of it. Um, I believe it was an 8 o'clock service, and I talked to one of the pastors, and he said, you know what, Bernhard? When God forces a change in your life, he always brings something better in there. And that better is, I'm a testimony to that, because I uh, can now attend any service that I want to because I write my own schedule. <laughs> so um, with that, um, that was a, a change that... Uh, allowed me to come more regularly and, and bring the family. And this is our service, so the people in the back probably all recognize us. Um, anyways, uh, I was also uh, serving as an under-shepherd and as a shepherd for uh, Mini Church 444. And now currently I'm serving uh, Tuesday nights as the youth leader, youth table leader, and I am humbled and honored to uh, serve you as a, one of the church council members. Thank you very much, and God bless you. Thanks, Bernhard. Brad, Brad and Nia. Good morning. Uh, good morning. What is the meaning of success? Is it education, power, uh, money, toys? In my early 30s, I had it all. Uh, we, we were living in Texas. I was married. I had a 3,000-foot square. I had a 3,000-square-foot house, a three-car garage. I'm on the fast track at work to vice president. Uh, we were expecting our first child. By the world's measuring stick, I had it all. The one thing we didn't have, we weren't happy. I continually wanted more. Tracy had enough. She took our son and left me. I remember sitting in my perfect house, 
in my perfect bedroom, being all alone, crying, and being done. I was climbing the I was climbing the ladder of success, and I was on the wrong wall. In 1998, we started regularly attending Hope Chapel. Uh, we came for the worship. Uh, we stayed for Pastor Zach. <laughs> we rededicated our lives at Heaven's Gates, Hell's Flames. Uh, we learned how to be a family in this church. Uh, Kevin Rickard, our first mini church um, shepherd, uh, took me to lunch one day, and he told me, hey, you're spending too much time playing golf. Spend more time with your family, raising your son. Uh, Tui, uh, we had a miscarriage a few years back. Uh, we were in the back crying, and Terry, uh, Tui came back and uh, consoled us. Um, third grade children's church. Uh, we did a lesson. Uh, my wife and I taught third grade, and we taught a lesson on sanctification. The kids actually got it. Uh, I just completed my last ter uh, my term as an HCA school board member. Uh, there were many issues that we went through, but what I want to point out is that we were five men, all with uh, different opinions, but through prayer, through discussions, and through pr more prayer, we were able to come out with uh, consensus agreements. Success isn't defined by... He that has the most toys wins. What's my definition of success? Serving our Lord. Doing his will, not our own. Leading our families to the Lord. Discipling our wives and children. I'm not perfect. I'm still a sinner. But through God's grace, I'm getting better. I'm extremely humbled and honored to be here today. May God richly bless you. Thank you. As Brad was sharing, I was watching one of his daughters down there, and she was just beaming looking at you. She's hanging on every word, Brad. <laughs> Brian Carrico. Brian, please. And your wife and your son are going to be beaming. Listening to you. I love you. I love you, too. No, I love you. I'm thankful to my Lord and Savior Jesus for this opportunity to serve as one of your councilmen. I'm also thankful for this church. I'm really thankful for my wonderful wife, Donna, who, uh, you know, Donna's not a morning person, but she gets up every Sunday just to honor me and comes at 8 o'clock. She's really a Proverbs 31 wife. Proverbs 31 says that a wife of noble character, who can find? She's worth far more than rubies. Her husband has every confidence in her, and he lacks nothing of value. She brings him no harm and only good all the days of her life. Have you ever looked back at your life at certain milestones? And when you look back, you say, my gosh, look what God did. I remember the first time I really felt I knew I had to come to this church. I was uh, invited here. My brother-in-law came, and it was a men's only. It was on Saturday, and we sat right over there at a round table, and as we were kind of shooting the breeze with the guys, um, and then all of a sudden, the lights went low, and the worship band started praising, and 300 men stood up and raised their hands 
and sang worship songs to God. And the sound of those voices, it was like heaven. And I know that sounds kind of corny. And when I, when I look back, I, I think, well, what was so compelling about that? And what it was, there was power in that room that day. You could feel it. The Bible says that God inhabits the praise of his people. And I was at a point where I really needed power. We, uh, we had a new baby. Donna had almost died in childbirth. I had a new practice. And I needed this church. It was about 12 years later that God had richly blessed us. We had two offices. We had adopted two more children because we couldn't have any more. And we were up at a wedding up above Bakersfield with a bunch of friends from Hope. And Pastor Mark Dolan was officiating. And it was a beautiful spot. And I remember watching Mark's kids all day long. Little, his youngest boy, he was three years old. And, you know, he was dismantling the house virtually. And he was all boy. <laughs> and I turned to Don and I said, you know, I just want one more. I just want a dark baby boy because I was the dark one in my family. So now I said, well, you better start praying because I don't know how else it's going to happen. So Don and Johanna and I prayed, Lord, if it's your will, just bring us a dark baby boy. And, and uh, that was on a Saturday. And on Monday, I went back to work. And one of my patients who, who was, came to Hope, she was all excited because her daughter, who had been a drug addict, was going to have an abortion. But she went to church Saturday night, and Chris Cannon ministered to her. And she decided to keep the baby and give it up for adoption. And she's telling me this. I'm just, that's so, so crazy because we had just prayed Saturday. And seven months later, we had our dark baby boy. And there he is, <laughs> Jacob Elijah. And, you know, a couple years after that, I came home one day. And Donna was really distraught. And I said, what's wrong? And she, she shared with me how our, our oldest daughter, Sonny, who was in chiropractic school, she had been date raped. And a few weeks later, she got pregnant. Now, you know, as a Christian, life is not a tragedy. Abortion's not an option. But as a parent as, and as a father, you're like, you want to do something. You want justice. If, but what do you do? You do you go, of course, you're a reporter. Do you go to the police? Do you drag your daughter through all that? And You know, I had a real dilemma. And I, I remember I came on a Saturday night and came up and I waited till Zach was finished. And I said, Zach, you know, what do I do? And at the one sentence, it was so clear. Forgive the young man and move on. And now we have the most beautiful, incredible, amazing 14-year-old granddaughter. And our son, our daughter, Sonny, has married the most amazing man. They have four children. And, you know, I look back and I just think these milestones, God, he's so wonderful what he does in our lives. So as I prepared this week, I kept praying. And, and uh, you know, I pray for my wife a lot. I pray for my kids. I mostly pray that I would be a better husband. But, uh, you know, for your kids, you always pray that God would bring them a, a godly spouse and and you pray that God will give them a job that they love. And, and, and some, for some reason, the word courage came to me. And I thought, you know, what jobs require courage? Well, the military, certainly, and, or a police officer. But you know what job takes a lot of courage? Being a pastor. It really is a brutal job. And I've watched Zach for these last 27 years get up here week after week, faithful, leading us. And I'm so thankful for Zach and all of our pastors. You think Alan come?
So anyway, pray for us. You know, Paul said in Philippians that he was, a, he was a prisoner of King Nero, and he was in chains. And he said, because of these chains, some of the Christian brothers have been able to proclaim Jesus more courageously and fearlessly. And then in verse 21, he says, I pray that I would have courage, that I would exalt Christ into my body, either through life or death. And I think as we look around the world and we see that what's happening, and we see like the economy of Europe, virtually collapsing and the worldwide recession and things that are coming. We're all going to need more courage. We need to build each other up. We need to strengthen our families. We need to be ready for what's ahead. So thank you for this opportunity. I love you all and God bless you. It's time to vote. And ratify or not, so um, according to my earlier instructions, take out your ballots if you would. We're going to take a moment and pray and ask God to guide us. Lord, as we mark these ballots, we've heard from these men, we've read their biographs. Lord, the nominating committee has studied their lives and has commended them to this body. But we ask, Lord, for your confirmation. You reveal the things that are hidden, if anything indeed. Give us wisdom as we mark our ballots. We commend this huge, huge issue to you and to your wisdom and to your spirit. Thank you, Father. Amen? Amen. Mark your ballots, if you would, please, and pass them to the aisles. The ushers will pick them up. Have the worship team come back. We will praise the Lord one more time in song as we prepare to dismiss. Encourage one another to grow. Grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus.